Welcome to Con Langry, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. Uh, with us in the uh, Netherlands, we have Christophe Grancier Kluvitz. Goedenavond. <laughs> and um, uh, over in, um, is it uh, Calgary? Calgary, that's right. Yes. Um, in the Alberta province of Canada. We have a new guy on the show, uh, Joey Windsor. Yoo-hoo. <laughs> yes, yes, that is that is an. Um, I read your your paper about Klingon speakers. By the way, it's very uh, interesting. <laughs> interesting, excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, um, because my dissertation happens to be about L two stress production. I decided to sort of add that to my notes. I might have, it's not that relevant, but I might have a little footnote that, that's, that cites you. So, uh, oh, I look forward to yeah. seeing this. Yeah. Well, we can see, um, if I can get my dissertation done. <laughs> <laughs> that's always the challenge, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yeah. And, um, and, uh, if it passes with all the, uh, silly errors that I've made and have to work around. Um, but anyway, you're going to find errors for the rest of your life. Every time you open it, trust me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so today we brought Joey on here because Joey, you had an interesting talk at the last LCC, um, talking specifically about, um, using the Drescherian contrastive hierarchy um, That's right. when you're when you're constructing the phonology for a language. And I just thought I wouldn't wanted to bring you on in order to um, in order to uh, get at that idea of using linguistic theories for conlanging. It's not like we don't do theory stuff on this show. We do we usually stick to like bedrock solid, like the most non-controversial theories, like most linguists use phonemes. Most yes. linguists like break down the morphology of words in some way. Uh, most, most linguists really do have some sort of constituents and syntax, but we don't, you know, go into, you know, the way that people build up theories of syntax is go, goes way in different directions. Uh, and that's part of the reason for doing that is that linguistic theory is like so many different schools that often don't talk to each other enough, in my opinion. And, <laughs> and you know, it's easy not to get, um, it's, it's easier to avoid fights. But also, um, you can't really make a conlang without at least like intentionally or unintentionally making some sort of theoretical assumptions that like, okay, phonemes exist or, or, uh, it makes sense to, to 
put the affixes in this order or something like that. So it can be useful. I've always thought that looking at real languages and looking at typology is a little bit more useful for for linguists, but theory can can help as well. And by the way, and we also have Christoph also, who's like, maybe Joey is maybe more on the side of using theory. I'm maybe in the middle. Christoph, it seems, is going to be disagreeing a little bit. Not um, so much disagreeing as bringing a counterpoint from somebody who is not formally educated in right, linguistics right. and still thinks that he can uh, 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 do conlanging rather right, like yeah, so many yeah. others who are not linguists. And so bringing my, my own uh, point of view on that, which is not necessarily that linguistic theory is not useful, that uh, we are not linguists and we don't intend to be. So let's use it if, as a tool that is useful for us, but not yeah. do not get to, uh, too obsessed by it. And we're going to have a little bit of a discussion about this. Um, yeah. uh, and, uh, and, and Christophe, you, you bring up a very good point. I've seen your work on your languages, and you do very quality work without being a trained professional linguist. And most conlangers, including a lot of very good conlangers, are not really professional linguists. We're just sort of saying, okay, what's useful for conlangers? What's easier for conlangers to like understand and use even if they don't have advanced training and we're going to be talking about like like how do you use like a theoretical framework and you know what are the good points and the bad points you need to be looking for um so i've talked enough and joey i think i want you to sort of talk a little bit about this topic and maybe just talk about um starting from you know, the beginning and like why we want to use linguistic theory. Sure. Um, so for me, like to, to Christoph's point, you, you absolutely do not need to be a theoretical linguist to conlang. When I started trying to make a few of my own conlangs, um, I didn't necessarily inform them with theory and with the exception of one of them, I don't look back on the phonology I created and hate it. Um, I've gone back and I've tried to apply the theory to some of my, I'll call them pre-theoretical conlangs, and uh, I can't. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily an unnatural phonetic inventory or something like that. Um, but, you know, I, I got by without using the theory. Yeah. Um, I want when, to jump in. Uh, we will probably be focusing mostly on phonological theory here because... Myself and Joey both specialize in phonology, so if you yeah, I'm happy to talk about morphology or syntax as well. Uh, semantics, you might lose me a little bit, but uh, <laughs> yeah, gotta draw the line somewhere. Yeah. Um. So anyway, like you said at the LCC uh, in Calgary last summer, I did a presentation on using Drescher's uh, contrastive hierarchy for phonological theory, uh, specifically segmental or you know individual sounds. And I've started uh, religiously using this when I'm conlanging. Um, I just finished two phonetic inventories this morning where I worked out the full contrastive hierarchy and everything. And the reason I do that is because by strictly following a theory, 
I know I'm going to end up with at least a semi-natural phonetic inventory. And the second point of that is some of the work for me is already done once I start with this theory. So I know if some of my consonants have this lateral plus minus lateral feature, um, then I know I can use lateral in phonological rules to add some flavor to my conlang later on. And I know that not every single consonant is going to alternate with plus or minus lateral because, you know, maybe a majority of them don't care about lateralness. Um, so using the theory can, can help me later on by already making a few choices for me. Uh, one of the things you talked about is how accessible are some of these theories to not formally trained in linguistics conlangers. Uh, I think the contrastive hierarchy is accessible. I think Drescher's book is fantastic. Um, he's got some video lectures on the internet that are searchable. Um, and you, you can really get into it. On the other hand, one of the more advanced syntactic theories I use in, in my own research is called phase theory. And I don't think I'd recommend it for any not formally trained conlanger. Uh, again, because I use phase theory, some of my decisions are already made for me because I start by drawing a syntactic tree. And if something's in a lower phase, then it can't move to the top of the tree. So I don't get topicalization of indirect objects in some of my languages or, or things like that. But it's, it's a very inaccessible theory if you don't have the formal training. Um, so I wouldn't expect anyone to give it a second thought. But for me, there's, there's two real reasons to use theory. One, if you do the work up front, some of your decisions later on can be uh, easier or made for you because of your earlier choices. Two, if you want to make a natural language, following theory will probably lead to that. If you want to make an unnatural language, violating theoretical constraints will probably help you in that direction. Right. Um, and I just want to say, um, I do agree that the, the, the contrastive hierarchy is definitely something that a lot of people will understand and be able to use. The, the only sort of prerequisite is you need to have some knowledge of some kind of distinctive feature theory. It doesn't necessarily have to be one feature set or another there it it can be used with any of them but yeah it's um uh definitely it's just a way of once you have the idea of distinctive features you're choosing what distinctive features are active in the phonology that's exactly which, it which is absolutely something useful for you to like decide ahead of time um, on the other hand, what you were just talking about there is the theory. Um, you're you're using the theory, and you're you're. This is making some things easier for you. It's also imposing limitations on you. Which, oh yeah, that's yeah. absolutely correct. Yeah, once you once you figured out your contrastive hierarchy, which obviously you could revise it later, then mm -hmm. this is like making this is this is the way the language is at least at some particular stage and that's constraining what you do later now that's not necessarily a bad thing but you know it's something you have to be aware of uh and you have to be aware 
all uh, with all these theories of like what is it intending to describe and what can you make from it and what can't you make from it um and you know what's what's acceptable for you in terms of limitations you're absolutely right um i think one of the topics i ended up getting into at the lcc last year was historical change um and i said i had this proto language that had certain features and then i decided to invert some of the the positions of those features in the tree and that made some daughter languages for me or if i used some uh, under specification if i didn't use every single feature that you'll find in in just about any introductory linguistics textbook then when i ended up with a phonology that i really didn't like i said well I don't need bilabial trills. The combination of the features I have in uh, this language don't necessarily have to be a bilabial trill. They could just be a ejective stop, still bilabial, still non-sonorant, still non-syllabic, way I go. And so that's, that helped me revise things to, you know, after I got through it, oh, I really don't like what I did. I can go back, I can revise things and still have the same basic structure of the phonology that I had created originally. Right. Basically, that sounds like uh, something that I would have had have a problem with. Although I'm concerned with the constraints that you create yourself, if as a non-linguist like me, you try to apply a theory that you don't completely understand the the consequences of, like uh, uh, George said. So that's always the, the the issue I have with, especially with linguistics, which is still a rather young science. Yeah. And uh, when you read about uh, the various disagreements in the field, it's getting quite difficult to know what you can use and what you cannot use, what is currently considered uh, accepted might in five years be told that it was all, all complete, <laughs> complete garbage. So it's, it, yeah. as a non-linguist, I'm always concerned about what am I uh, going to use and am I really understanding what I'm doing? Yeah. And I think that's a really good point, Christoph. Um, what I would say to that is... If, if your use of theory, like there's nothing hanging on it. You're not publishing a paper that says this is the way that the, the mind works of a Somali speaker or something like that. It doesn't really matter if you use an outdated theory. Theories are, are self-contained units. And as long as you follow some theory that you're comfortable with, it's going to lead to a certain amount of structure in your conlang. Right. And I'll, I'll preface everything I'm going to say with, if that's your goal in your conline. Right. And um, all, all linguistic theories are intended to describe real linguistic data, even the ones where, um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people express doubts about the, those theories that are based a lot on introspection and and native intuition because the data can be a little bit um less lower quality on those um even that it's still real data you can question about whether there might be some some intrinsic biases in that and and some and whether that's 
low quality or or some of the conclusions, but it's a theory that describes a real language. So most theories applied with a little bit of care will get you a realistic language. They might bias you in certain directions, but they will. However, you do have to watch out. And when you're reading about these theories, pay attention to uh, places where, you know, they're trying to describe real languages, but um, there's two, two possible ways where a theory can go wrong and where most of them do go wrong at least a little bit is either they undergenerate, which means that they can't describe certain things that actually do occur in real languages, which is not necessarily fatal, fatal but it's, it's biasing you away from certain structures that you might otherwise have gone to. And then there are um, um, ones that overgenerate and create weird things that never, never actually happen. Now, we're all familiar with Anadu and, and you know, you can find almost, almost any linguistic feature you can think of, but there are sometimes things that we don't find. And, um, you know, uh, one theory that can get into a problem with overgeneration if you're doing it too naively is optimality theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to tell a little story. I went to a conference once where... Some people were trying to apply optimality theory to stress systems, and they came up with a bunch of universal constraints. If you don't know optimality theory, the basic idea is uh, you're generating a bunch of different possible forms at once, and then you're checking about them against rank constraints. And basically, uh, the one that um, that is the least bad, basically... That um, violates the lower ranking constraints and has the least number of violations is going to win, right? So you're ranking your constraints. What they did is they had all their constraints and they just ran it through a computer to to do all all possible constraint rankings on their constraints. And what they ended up with is they started getting odd things. And then they started to add more constraints to try to deal with odd things, and it just made it worse. Yeah. And you got weird things like where how the stress pattern works is dependent on the whether the syllables have an odd or an even number, which is not a thing that happens in natural languages. So no. it was so <laughs> sometimes you have to be a little bit careful and kind of think about like, is what I'm getting from this theory something that could actually happen. And again, like if you go into OT, like um, they know about these problems and there are people working on OT who are trying to address those problems. So when you start reading about it, you will find people saying, okay, uh, we've had this criticism here and we've had this problem with our theory here and talk about like, um, you know, what things that it makes that, they don't find in natural languages and 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 ways that they're trying to to uh, get rid of the problem, right? Yeah. 
I, I used to teach optimality theory um, when I was a, a graduate assistant for the phonology classes, and I'd start by getting my students to make coffee. We'd have constraints like star bitter and don't appenthesize cream and don't appenthesize sugar and star black, things like that, and we'd, we'd end up getting the coffee that they liked by reorganizing the constraints. And that example was to show them how powerful optimality theory is because you literally can just make up new constraints but that doesn't make them good constraints and what i used to say was a good constraint is something that can be found to be violated in some language can be found to not be violated in some other language or be a higher ranked constraint like you you, you phrased it um, and something that is phonologically plausible like you should, we have a wealth of history, even as a young science, you know, we've been doing phonology for 50, 60 years, at least quite seriously. And the observations from SPE or, or element theory or, um, contrastive theory of phonology or, or, um, feature geometry, whatever you want to do, they're, they're still valid observations and optimality theory shouldn't be reinventing the wheel. Um, it, it should build on some of those observations and that tradition that we've always had. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, uh, yeah, go ahead, Christoph. No, I, I, uh, yeah, I completely agree with that. And I've, I've heard about optimality theory and, uh, also the complaints about how it can be too powerful if it's applied a bit too naively. Uh, on the other hand, and that's also one thing that's interesting that as a, I've always been fascinated by the limits of naturalism and how far you can go. And I even have uh, in, my, in my list of books that I still have to read, I have two books about uh, called uh, one called Rethinking Universals and another called Rara and Rarissima about the rarer stuff that is found among, uh, among uh, the languages that we know of, mm. which is by the way, just a small uh, sample compared to all the languages that have possibly existed in the uh, history of mankind or humankind, mm -hmm. as you want to call it. So, what I want to get there is that uh, there's a lot of stuff that we don't know we don't know. <laughs> that there may be some things that we think are impossible but are actually happened in a language that unfortunately was lost in the midst of time or just happened in a language that we have not discovered yet yeah. so I would be especially if uh, if you're like me interesting in making languages that are not just run-of-the-mill run naturalistic but try to push the envelope a bit mm -hmm. uh, try to not to be careful to uh, let yourself uh, 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 be uh, uh, how could I say that to uh, to to let yourself go away from a promising uh, uh, structure or something just because the majority of people say that is impossible. Yeah, and that's just... a really good point. Mm -hmm. uh, so what I was going to say was um, this actually came up in my dissertation and actually in my dissertation defense. I had made a statement that um, one of the predicted structures uh, wouldn't be found in a natural language, and my examiner said, why not? And I stepped back and I said, well, 
I guess there's absolutely no linguistic principle that prohibits this structure. Um, I don't think it's attested, and I would be very surprised to find it, but there's there's no principle that prohibits it. So maybe Christoph is right in, in a language that became extinct before we started cataloging things, or, or one we haven't encountered yet, maybe that one particular structure would exist and it would surprise me. Um, but just, you know, their theory has its limitations, which as George was saying, may or may not align with uh, the attested structures. Yeah, and um, I mean, you you don't need to be too like overly careful about because I mean, if you're not creating something that's not totally attested, then then you're not even making a con line. You're going to be making like um, like you're just going to be using some other language, right? Um, yeah. There's for a static key. There's you know an interaction of um, morphological features uh, with the. Uh, I have direct inverse. I have um, inflecting prepositions. I have um, Dravidian style gender. I don't know of a language that has all of those features, but I can make them work together. Oh yeah. And. I don't really see any reason why a language couldn't arise that has that particular collection of features working together the way that I have them. So obviously just because like some particular combination is not attested doesn't mean it's not possible. Um, still, you mean you have to be aware of like what things are not attested but plausible and then what things are not attested, and much less likely to happen. Things like the, the um, you know, like what I was talking about, like even or odd syllables affecting the stress pattern, that really, you know, we don't find any language that does that. And the languages we do know, they just really seem to assign stress by counting from one end of the word or the, or the other. So it doesn't seem like the like the number of syllables should matter, right? No, phonology can't uh, count. It it famously can't count. Yeah. Or well, people say that it can count to it can count to two or maybe count to three, but it doesn't count like all the syllables of the word that way, definitely. No. Uh, I have a language that to counts to four. Oh, okay. In my, in my lophology, at, at least in the in, in, in the stress patterns, it counts to four. Um, and I and I did that on purpose. <laughs> to yeah. just say that counting to three, okay, I, I count to four, and I'll see if I can uh, handle it or not. <laughs> so so is it so? Where is the stress put then? Uh, any of the uh, it can be any of the uh, last four syllables of a word. Okay. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> if uh, uh, and it's partially. Uh, it's it, it's uh, how to say that it's partially semantic, so it de depends on the word. There's one constraint: it can never appear on the first syllable of the word. Okay. And unless the word has a single syllable, then <laughs> then that's easy. But uh, it cannot appear on the first syllable, and it can appear on any of the last four. Okay. And uh, if you add uh, suffixes and uh, clitics, uh, you get all kind of interesting phenomena happening. Yeah. Which, uh, but it's it's 
rather simple. It's just that I, uh, uh, instead of having up to the third syllable to last, I went to the fourth. Yeah. And so far, it works fine. <laughs> and there, there what you did is you took basically the theoretical assumption that we always have in phonology yeah. um, of... Um, and it depends on like how you're constructing your theory, whether you're saying we, we can count to two or we can count to three. But you're just taking that and taking one assumption and you're knowingly violating that. I don't see a problem with that if that's what you want to do. Because, no. I mean, I mean, that's how we got Klingon. That, yeah. <laughs> Joey, well, you just wrote a paper on how really freaking weird the Klingon um um uh, stress system is and it is really freaking weird i'll i'll we'll put that paper in the show notes because it's um if you if you know anything about like weight sensitive stress it doesn't make any sense um <laughs> yeah i got to chat with mark oakrand about it and i said you know i have this theory of how klingon works and you know now yeah. i have a chance to ask you i'm gonna ask you and uh i explained what it was and he said, so what you're saying is the system I came up with breaks your theory? I said, yes. He said, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I mean, it was intentionally a non-human, unnatural, by a human-centric yeah. point of view, conlang. And he achieved it by breaking rules. Uh, but what you proved is that at least English speakers can acquire it. Yeah, it is. It's a learnable system. It's just, so, so, I call it a barely. So system. it's. It's it's very like it's totally on a test and it's very weird, and you know, we can we can we can go about like um, I have a hypothesis about it that we could test uh, possibly, but um, uh, that's an interesting thing that uh, that and it was deliberately weird. Everything about yeah. Klingon is deliberately weird. The 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 phoneme inventory doesn't make sense to a phonologist. The mm -hmm. The syllable structure doesn't make any sense. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 um, intended to be that way. And if you're intending to do it that way, then that's another way that theory can be even be useful. If you want to yeah. make something that's intentionally not human, then you have to figure out, like, what do we know human languages do? Okay. So, um... Any other notes before I, I kind of want to get into like examples of things that I've done. We've talked about, Joey, you've talked about ways that you've applied theory. Um, any, anybody have other things you want to talk about before I get into that? No, I'm happy to move topics. Yeah. Um, okay. So I just wanted to talk about um, a couple of examples First of all, I did, I kind of did it post facto just to like confirm that it works. For Estatiki is to um, do the uh, contrastive hierarchy just for vowels to see if I could make my vowel harmony work in there. <laughs> right? And it's very hard to go post hoc with that system. Yeah, it is. Not impossible, but very hard. Um, I, I did actually end up um, modifying things a little bit. And um, like the, the key thing is that I made, I was making the ah vowel transparent to back harmony. Okay. But it does trigger 
lowering the um, height harmony. So it it makes things it lowers things. So you have the the low specification higher in your tree than the back specification and yeah. aw branches and it, beforehand. And it, and it worked off and it, it worked out that that it made sense and I could make ah basically it's not back. Yeah. It's it's it in in terms of advancement it's nothing. But it is low. Um so it can lower things or uh, or maybe it's like not even specified for height, but if it's not specified for height then the next thing is automatically lowered, right? Because the okay. the lowered vowels are not actually low; they're they're mid vowels. But anyway, <laughs> this this gets complicated. Yeah, I think uh, I, I was making some notes for this show, and uh, one of the things I put in there was, um, where is it here? If you're if you're uh, not a trained linguist, a sentence like "debuccalization of the coronal spirant results in a glottal consonant, which may be subsequently deleted if it does not carry a secondary palatal <laughs> place feature," is an, an unapproachable sentence. And I, I think we just demonstrated exactly that. Yeah, yeah. We, we can I, get I, lost in our own vocabulary let, let, here. Pretty yeah, let, let, let's just say that I, I read linguistic uh, uh, linguistic books, and even that I can't read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. It's, but, uh, uh, it 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 it, it reads like some of the stuff that I had to to read when I was doing fluid dynamics. <laughs> yeah. Well, but I can say, but like I could translate that a little bit. So like, debuccalization that just means loss of oral articulation. Yep. So that's 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 like T going to uh, H. That's to to H or to yeah it's so the coronal spirit that could be any of s or th or sh well sh, sh can be coronal yeah um be. so it it's some it's some fricative that's 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 articulated with the front of your tongue um and yeah so debuculization and that becomes a global consonant which is probably it's probably yeah. an H. This, uh, um, this actually describes yeah. uh, something in Irish where you get s becoming <sighs> unless it has a secondary place articulation, in which case it's a palatal. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Which you know, once you know what all those words mean, that makes total sense. That that that's what it means. So, and that's just like terminology that has been used for a long time. Uh, so you know, you just have to. Um, get sort of used to different things, but um, but I used the Drosharian tree, and I made made you know the the uh, the the vowel harmony I had work with that. Um, now, um, and you know that's useful. I, I was just showing what features can be active, and it worked out. Um, the other thing I did was um, I wanted weight-sensitive stress. And this is a thing about, like, the question of whether you need a theory. If you have completely regular stress on a particular syllable, like you're putting always final stress, like French, or always penultimate, or always initial, always pen-initial, that's rare, but it can happen, Um then you don't need to 
worry about any metrical theory because it's you just you just say you're assigning stress to whatever syllable, right? Um, well, then you have to ask yourself, what is a word? Like, are are you assigning pen initial or, or penultimate stress based on your stem, or do you assign stress after all of your affixes have been added, or before all of your affixes yeah. have been added? Do prefixes and suffixes pattern separately? Because we see that in Algonquian languages, for example, where uh, prefixes are part of a different word, but suffixes are part of the same phonological words. And right. There's all kinds of stuff that you can still use theory for there. Yeah, definitely. I'm just... Can use just saying the the basic part of it you don't necessarily need to you there's still some choices to be made once you've de- decided that um i'm just getting into into if you want to do weight sensitive stress though then it can help to use a metrical grid which a metrical grid basically all you're doing is you're saying um based on criteria you have several stages in your metrical grid, and you're saying, um, okay, at this point, I'm going to add a mark to these particular um, syllables. And it can be based on position, and it can be base- based on um, syllable weight, which is how you get the, the weight sensitivity. And as you build up, then then you get to the uh, the the syllable that's going to be stressed. Um, I'm just working at the word level for that, um, but it can even build up into other p- bigger prosodic domains. So, hmm? well, I was just going to say yeah. I, I think uh, you're right. The metrical grid is probably the most accessible theory for people without formal linguistic training. Uh, if people looked up how to do metrical grid theory, it's it's probably going to make a lot more sense than, say, optimality theory or, yeah. or any of the other prosodic theories. Right. Optimality theory, you have to actually know a lot of other linguistics in order to actually apply it. Um, yeah. Metrical grid theory, you can use just on its own. Um, now, there's different metrical grid theories around. Uh, some of them do, like, domain boundaries and some of them don't so it's you 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 can sort of pick the one that uh works the best for you but basically what i ended up doing i ended up with a pretty simple metrical grid that um basically ends up assigning if nothing if um it automatically will assign stress to the penultimate syllable unless the final syllable is heavy and then the final syllable gets stress and then it also computes where secondary stress will appear. It's very useful if you need se- secondary stress. Um, so that worked out. And I was also able to implement that in phonics using um, the, the scalar features in phonics. I was able to basically make the computer do the metrical grid calculation itself. And then I could automatically assign stress to my words and do stress-based phonological rules. So you can even use the theory in another tool in order to, like, make things work out right. Uh, Did that make sense? It did to me. (laughs) Did it make sense uh, to Kristoff? (laughs) I think so. It's... it's, uh, I'm just concerned about uh is there 
in this kind of theory, any uh, um, how to say that any assumption that people actually make these kind of calculations when they are speaking because I, I get the idea that uh, it's a whole complicated theory to describe something that well I'm not sure that people speaking a language actually do this kind of, uh, uh, of calculations when they speak that's it's not so how things happen Mm. Yeah, we're, we're talking about whether or not you actually have this kind of online processing is what they call it. Um, and the, the theory is you have this prosodic hierarchy, so you have um, your, your actual sound segments, and they get developed or divided into um, possibly timing units and then syllables and then metrical feet and then words and phrases and intonational phrases and however many levels you happen to have in your particular theory. And what tends to happen is one syllable within a metrical foot will, will gain prominence and one foot within a phonological word will gain prominence and one word within a phonological phrase will gain prominence. Right. And what this grid does, it just tracks the prominences from top to bottom or bottom to top, depending on your language. And so whichever one happens to line up where you have five levels of prominence all over the exact same syllable, that one is your primary stress. And some of them might not gain prominence from every single level, but they might have one or two levels of prominence. And so these are your secondary or tertiary stresses. Right. And we, we know that this matters to people because if you put emphasis on the wrong syllable, uh, <laughs> things can get confusing. Yeah. Now, um, uh, you do raise a, a, a good point, and though in that, is this internally what people are doing on every single word? At the phrase level, we probably are processing these things so that we end up, like when we're accenting one word in a sentence, we end up accenting the stress syllable of that word, um, the, the primary stress on that word. Um, at the word level, so metrical grid theories have to contend with the fact that they have to make an ex exceptions for languages like English and like Russian that have lexically determined stress that has to be memorized. So, and that's getting into like, you know, what does a theory do and what can the theory not do that's, that's mm -hmm. actually attested. So if you want lexical stress, you can still use a grid theory, but you have to like read into it and understand like how are they handling these cases where you have you have to remember the stress pattern on an individual word or divide words into classes and remember what stress class the word belongs to. So there's there's definitely something you have to to deal with. Uh, are you hearing that? Yeah. Uh, are you hearing the the baby? Uh, I'm not. No, okay. I'm not. Okay, you should be fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and that's 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 a thing you have to think about with any any theory is is sometimes um, they run into places where they don't necessarily describe all languages, and usually authors will be aware of that and will tell you that, especially you know try to find like uh, 
more recent ex- explanations. Um, so, but it's it's a useful thing to get you um, that stress assignment. Um, I actually do have doubts about it because of other stuff from language acquisition that seems to indicate that the bar for the bar that uh, ends up requiring a um uh a, a, like an infant acquiring the language to start memorizing the words is before you really get out of completely regular stress languages even um uh a completely regular stress language it seems like if there's something that causes them um so like polish has regular penultimate stress but you can have at the end of the word a content word that that is one syllable and the idea is that maybe those children end up having to actually memorize stress just because at the end end of an utterance they can't always have a regular rule so there's the theory, the metrical grids are useful. They're not necessarily 100% the only way that stress gets assigned because we have these counterexamples to work with. And it doesn't really, it's not, you, you need to be aware of that, but it's not necessarily a fatal thing. Um, and knowing that, but even knowing also this uh, this other theory about acquisition can also tell you um, what languages are likely to have exceptions. Because one thing about Polish is there are lexical exceptions from loanwords that have a different stress pattern. <laughs> and that's one of the like clues that peop- that Polish people acquire the language and memor- start memorizing stress on words. Whereas French, you don't get exceptions. It's always final stress. Um, yeah, and, and and actually, you notice that because if you talk about stress, most French people who are not linguistically minded won't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, they don't hear it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's called stress deafness. They don't. They they they, they cannot even. They, they they don't actually hear it because it's completely regular. They don't store it. They just automatically apply their final stress rule to every word. Correct. Precisely. And if you speak French with a different French, uh, uh, stress pattern, they will hear that it's weird, but they won't, will never be able to explain you <laughs> what's, what's wrong with the way you speak. Yeah. And then you have French people trying to learn other languages that do have uh, uh, stress, especially English, and then you have this very specific uh, way of speaking that I've just heard again uh, a few days ago, a French person trying to speak English, and it sounds quite like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm ca- I can't even do it right, where everything is ends up st- stressed at the end of, uh, of noun fr- of, of phrases. Mm-hmm. And it's a very weird way of... Uh, <laughs> it sounds very weird. Right. So... Um, I think the bottom line on the discussion we just had, the metrical grids are useful. Um, and I used them and they gave me what I wanted to do. Um, on, so it's 
not that a particular theory is not useful if it doesn't do everything that that you might wish for it. On the other hand, like if there's something else you want to do that's a little bit outside the theory or falls onto or un, on into a, an exception to the theory, well, if there's other natural languages that do that, then you're going to know that like totally faithfully applying the metrical grid is not necessarily going to give you all of the information. So when you're working with linguistic theory and conlanging based on linguistic theory, um, it's all about finding the tool that works for you to do what you want to do and also knowing that none of these frameworks is perfect. So yeah. <laughs> so you have to you have to be able to like hold those two ideas in the, at the same time. I didn't need to worry about any like lexical stress or anything for what I was doing. Uh, I just needed to have something that would do weight sensitive stress the way I wanted it. So I used the metrical grid. I completely agree, and I, it's actually my uh, what I wrote uh, in the uh, in in the notes about my my own opinion is that uh, linguistic theories they are self they are fine for linguists. For conlangers, they are on their own; they are useless. It's the tools that they provide that are useful. Mm -hmm. That's and an excellent tool, point. Yeah, and if the tools are useful, by by all means, use them. But do not focus too much on the linguistic theory, except to know what is the range of validity of the tool you're using. Right. So, if it, I, I would love, for instance, to have something like a. a, a a linguistic primer for conlangers of all the main tools in every area of conlanging, whether it's phonology, morphology, syntax, pragmatics, everything, tools that are accessible and useful, how to apply them, where they apply, where they don't apply, and just uh, uh, have a, like a, basically like a toolbox for conlangers of, uh, of, of stuff that can be useful Someday, when I am a little bit less swamped, I have, I have had the idea of, um, uh, of actually doing some something like that for phonology, just for phonology. Um, Joey, maybe you and me could work together on this. Maybe just do <laughs> do a series of Fiat Lingua articles doing different. We could do um, the contrastive hierarchy. We could do the the metrical grid, we could do some feature geometry. and That's an awesome idea. Yeah, and I'd like to lay it out as, okay, this is what this theory is good at. These are cases where, where it falls short. These are cases where it makes weird things. And then sort of like just lay out so that conlangers can look at this and say, okay, whether this, this particular tool is useful for me or not for the kind of language I want to do. Yeah. And I mean, another thing is, do you actually have to do every step of the theory? So um, like David Peterson kind of famously doesn't like morphemes. Uh, and this traces back to a, a morphology class he had, and I think probably his master's degree. Um, and if I had to guess based on who that class was with, the, the class was probably in the theory of word and paradigm morphology, which yeah, that's is what he personally what I use as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it's the theory of morphology I ascribe to. Um, 
but I don't go through and lay out my lexicon and my radicon and look at the interface between lexicon and radicon, which hopefully means nothing to most people. Um, but I know that I don't need a separate morpheme for plural and a separate morpheme for definite and a separate morpheme for animate and a separate morpheme for stationary and a separate morpheme for whatever else I want to do, case or something like that. I can have a morpheme that is definite plural nominative. Right. And that's something that um, word and paradigm morphology can get you to. And you can also fill in gaps, like, or you can purposely leave gaps, like plural second person in English. You know, some of us have yiz or y'all, but for most people it's you and it's indistinguishable from the first person. And, and that word and paradigm morphology can get you that natural morphology without having to, you know, go off the deep end and have a noun that suddenly has 16 affixes on it. Unless, right. of course, that's what you want. And, and it's all about what you want. Um, uh, and this also gets into, like, theories will bias you in a certain direction. So you kind of want to have an idea of what kind of language do I want before I select mm -hmm. a theoretical tool too, because some people, some people will want like a, an agglutinating language that has a lot of different things, and and they can just use morphemes just without without worrying about that. Um, the objection that I saw from David, um, I mean he. Okay, my, my, my daughter just opened the door for a second. So <laughs> no problem. Um, and you guessed on the program. Um, but um, uh, th Daddy's talking to people, okay? Okay. Yeah. Uh, she, she's, 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 she's learning English and hopefully a little bit Chinese now. Okay. What I was saying... Okay. The, what I was saying is David's objection, from what I understand... Yes, he does believe that morphemes don't exist. If he's arguing the, the like the the actual merits of the theory, but but um, it seems like his main theory idea is that adhering too much to morphemes is going to bias conlangers into making the kind of language that. Um, you were just talking about where it's highly agglutinating and like each morpheme has a very like particular strict meaning and each affix has a particular meaning and and you get you know these very long words yeah if you want to do that then you don't have to worry about it but if you would prefer to um uh have some you know multiple exponents and stuff you can do that in morpheme theory. It might be easier to do it in word and paradigm. Uh, so, uh, so uh, at the same time, word and paradigm is all about inflection, it seems like. I'm not sure what it really says about derivation. I don't remember it uh, drawing an actual distinction between inflection and derivation, um, which has been an, an ongoing theoretical battle for at least 40 years now, whether or not inflection and derivation as separate categories in morphology is something we impose as linguists or if it's actually inherent in the system. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't have a good answer for you. I have friends that are working on that problem, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm not one. Yeah. 
Um, and 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 that's going back to 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 my first uh, uh, comment on that linguistics, even though it's been going on for quite a while, is still a very young science, and there's still a lot of stuff that we simply don't know. Yeah, and we need to be a, a, aware of that, and especially people who want to look to use uh, a theoretical framework needs to need to know. That the knowledge we have is uh, is limited, and that those yeah. frameworks will have limitations because of that. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things I, I try to drill into to my students' heads constantly is in linguistics we don't prove things; we offer evidence in favor or against things. Because until the technology exists where you can actually stick an electrode into someone's brain and say, "Oh, look, there's a phoneme. Oh, I see what you're doing to that phoneme," we don't know what the phoneme is doing or what the actual phoneme is. Mm. Um, we, we find cases in phonology where you have this really, really regular pattern and you go, okay, this must be the phoneme, but it's actually the exception that's the phoneme and the regular pattern is computed by majority rule. And all we can do is we can we can offer evidence in support of a viewpoint, but we can't actually prove things the way that biology can slice something open and say, hey, this thing actually does have an internal skeleton, or this thing does have a spleen, or, you know, gravitational waves are real because we can capture them and we can measure them by seeing how light bends over a four-kilometer stretch. We can't do that nearly as much in linguistics as you can in some of the physical sciences. So our theories are always going to be revised. There's always going to be debate where people are in favor of one theoretical commitment or another. Um, and that's okay. Um, yeah. If you want to use linguistic theory for your conlang, pick what you want, go with it. And if your next conlang you want to use a different theory, pick a different theory and go with it. There's, there's nothing wrong with doing that because it really is an art form and, and you're the creator of it. So have fun. And, and again, all theories are trying to describe natural data. Yeah. So whatever theory that you're doing, you are working, you're, you, you, you'll, you'll be seeing the examples of the data that people are trying to, to work on. And that itself gives you inspiration. Um, I have, I had a note in here, like there's, in prosodic phonology, there's a, an arguments about the domains, and there's just arguments even about like what to call certain domains. There's something <laughs> called a clitic group that's like a phonological word and any clitics that are attached to it. And people, some people want to call it a composite group because they're like, oh, well, in a lot of languages, compounds and clitics act like they're the same domain. Like the two words in the compound have the same phonological behavior as a word in its clinic, and I'm just like, okay, well, that's the debate, but look at what the data they're pointing to is, is that, hey, you can phonologically treat a clinic the same as the two components of a compound. Well, I use that in istatiki, the, 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 um, the, 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 the vowel harmony is confined to the phonological word. So, um, so the two words in the compound do not have to harmonize and a a clitic doesn't have to harmonize with the the whatever it's being attached to um and uh, you know i even added like a historical la layer of historical compounds that also that did harmonize and stuff but that's where i got the idea was looking at this debate 
and saying, oh, I can use, like, what they're arguing about. Um, the last thing I kind of want to say, I want to talk about your idea about proving things. In science, really, you don't absolutely prove things. That's a math <laughs> you, you thing. You fail to reject the, uh, the yeah. hypothesis. Yeah, yep, yeah. Precisely. It's, the proving is a math thing. In science, you, you do evidence. But some of the more real and physical things that we do find, and me, since I do phonetics, you know, I know like the most physical thing. A lot of the narrow phonetics stuff isn't that useful, but knowing some of that will help you. And maybe I could do a whole episode on this, but one tidbit I'm going to say, there are a lot of conlangers I see who want to be really fiddly about how they label their vowels with IPA mm. and use like the raised and lowers and lower and stuff on the phoneme or try to do like 60 different vowels. <laughs> I understand the phonetics of vowels and from the phonetics of vowels, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if you're going for naturalism because a vowel is not a point in the vowel space. The vowel is, it's like a probabilistic cloud. You, people people will pronounce an A within this peti- this general area in the vowel space uh, with, you know, within this, you know, set of um, F1 and F2 values. But it's not, it's not like they're not going to consistently always pronounce it the same way twice. It's, it's, it's a statistical thing. So you can't have tons of different vowel, vowel, um, uh, vowel distinctions because soon they're going to overlap. And it's not really that important if there's no distinction between like tense and lax and e, e and e. It doesn't really matter which one you choose that much. Uh, maybe, maybe you want to say the center of that space is closer to one or the other, but it's really, you don't have to be too picky about it. So <laughs> this is actually why I use the contrast of hierarchy. So, you know, one of the languages I was just working on has um, rounding distinctions in the consonant series, but no rounding distinctions in the uh, vowel series. Um, so I, I chose the phoneme would be the, if it was a front vowel, it would be unrounded. And if it was a back vowel, it would be rounded as a phoneme. But what I got to do is say, you know, it doesn't really matter if I have ah or aw. You know, they're both back, low vowels. One's round, one's not round. And there's no specification for roundness on that vowel. So to speakers of this language, it's not going to matter. But what I can do is say, it agrees with ever whatever consonant it follows. If it's a rounded consonant, use a rounded vowel. If it's an unrounded yeah. consonant, use an unrounded vowel. And nobody's going to know the difference if they're native speakers of that conline. Right, and that's one way you can you can use a contrastive hierarchy. You could also make those different uh, sociophonetic variables too. Like some people yeah. pronounce it as an ah most of the time. Some people pronounce it as an aw most of the time. Uh, there's, there's a lot of things you could do with that. And I, I like that example. Um, and contrastive hierarchy does a lot of good stuff for vowels. Um, I just want to say, uh, uh, not being too picky about the vowels. You can, you can not worry about being too picky with some kinds of consonants too, but there, there is a difference in that some consonant distinctions really are 
category, the distinction between plain and aspirated, that, like, there's, like, a line where <laughs> people, this, like, somewhere between 20 and 40 milliseconds, it depends on the the place of articulation and where it is in the word, but somewhere between 20 and 40 milliseconds, there will be a line where, okay, this side it's plain, and this side it's, um, it's, it's aspirated. So, some things are pretty discreet, but vowels are not. Vowels are not. Um, anyway, that's all I'm going to say about that because I could, I could end up going all along and my daughter is awake, so I probably should uh, go and play with her. Um, <laughs> any last things that you guys want to share? I think this has been a pretty good discussion. Yeah. Uh, Christoph, anything else from, from your point of view? Uh, just uh, an example that I always gave it that um, uh, theory for non-theorists is only as useful, like I said, as the tools it brings. And I always give the example, uh, especially in the case of artists, like we are, at least I think we are, I is that so. uh, yeah, uh, painters don't need to know all the in and outs of color theory to be able to, be able to paint. You don't need to know that. It can be useful, to know what are uh, um, uh, the, the the color, sorry, there's some uh, <laughs> there was some uh, uh, I think a police car uh, driving by. Um, uh, knowing about uh, uh, the color circle and uh, the what are complementary and supplementary colors can be useful, but knowing the ins and outs of uh, rods and cones in the eye and of the uh, the the entire reason why the uh, color gamut is as it is for human beings is not going to be that useful unless you want to do some special things for colorblind people so as a painter it's good to have some idea about color theory but you don't need to do uh, to to know everything, just know, need to know the tools that color theory can bring you, or not. You can just I, you can be a great painter without knowing any color theory. You mostly painters that uh, uh, learn with experience uh, what works and what doesn't, and in the end, they, with enough experience, end up knowing nearly as much as those that actually studied color theory. I, I want to completely agree with you, Christoph. Um, I, I think the biggest thing that linguistics can contribute to conlanging is, uh, and George has said it a number of times, um, describing naturalistic data so we know what popular trends in human languages are, and you can probably gain um, just as much, if not more, information to inform your conlanging from picking up a couple of popular grammars rather than a linguistics textbook. But some of the tools that linguistics can give us, um, I think, is the, the language of linguistics will allow us to communicate our ideas to one another better. Um, we, we have the the conlang list serve and people are sending out questions and giving examples from their own conlangs and things like that. Uh, and one of the posts I recently made on the list serve was I would encourage people to look up the Leipzig glossing rules. And so you can do interlinear glossing. Uh, if you can show me your sentence and you can show me the, whether you believe in morphemes or not, the morpheme by morpheme breakdown and what the morphemes mean, 
I will be better able to give you feedback on your conlang. I will be better able to say, I think one of the discussion points was, is this really a dative or is it an allative case? Or does it even matter? Who knows? Um, <laughs> it'll depend on the conlang. But yeah. if if we're all speaking the same analytical language, we can communicate our ideas to one another better and we can support each other a little bit better. And I, I think that's one of the fantastic tools that linguistics, uh, irrespective of theory, provides us as as artists and as conlangers. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree on that, is that learning linguistic vocabulary is basically, as a conlanger, is a given. It's uh, not just, as you said, about uh, communication, but it will actually streamline your own thought process. And yeah. it will remove you from some of the assumptions that you may have due to the languages you already know, and especially the descriptions that you've uh, that you've got of those languages that you probably didn't get from actual linguists, but from uh, from school, which have quite uh, uh, which has a, which have a lot of unspoken assumptions. Knowing the language of of, of linguistics helps you get rid of all that baggage and uh, look at languages in a more well, let's say unbiased, neutral way. Great yeah. point. Although not totally neutral, I think um, David Peterson even um, suggests just like when you're doing morphological categories, like cases, just like first going with like what is it used for, and figuring out like different examples of what it's used for, and then he actually sa- tells people to to let like linguists later analyze it and figure out what, what to call that. But I mean, I think there's some value in learning how to describe it yourself. But it makes sense to say, like, at first, okay, I want a case that does this, uh, or I want my cases to do this, this, and the, this, and this, and figure out, like, what they do, and then sort of, sort of, like, work out, like, um, what to call them based on what seems to be the primary function, right? Um, yeah. But, um, we're we're this episode is all about starting with theory, so we didn't do that. Um, the thing I want people to leave with in this episode, and then I'm going to end it, is don't get hung up on whether the theory is true, um, or whether whether this is really what's going on psychologically. Um, just think about how is it useful for your conlanging, okay? Um, like, you know, uh, so don't let linguists figure out what's true and what's not. And <laughs> I, I guarantee you all of the theories that we currently have are false in some way. Um, but, yeah. but, you know, if you want to be a linguist, then you can, you can get into that work. But if you're just a conlanger, you don't need to worry about whether the theory is true. Just think about how it can be useful to you and how it can do what you, but, and whether it can do what you want to do with your language. Um, and with that, um, I'm just going to say, first of all, um, uh, Joey has provided some um, some textbooks that can get you started on uh, mostly some, some phonological theories, um, uh, some different things that, that will help you out. Um, uh, I might try to think of some more. I'll probably link to Joey your talk at LCC and to William's talk because he talked about another using theory, um, using the um, construction grammar, which is another theory that he applied to a conlang, and it gave him 
the results he wanted. Um, and Doug Balls. Uh, oh yeah, we can we can link Doug Ball too. Um, uh, uh, we'll link those, and um, hmm. we'd be happy to have people's feedback too. What absolutely? What what, what, what theories do you use? How do you use them? Uh, what are your sort of goals uh, when doing that? But with that, I am going to end the podcast so that I can I can go and be a good dad. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to say happy conlanging. Thank you for listening to Conlangery. You can find our archives and show notes at conlangery.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Our web space is provided by the Language Creation Society. Our site was designed by Bianca Richards. And our theme music is by Null Device. Conlangery is under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Share-Alike license. You are free to use our show for any non-commercial work as long as credit is provided to Conlangery Podcast and you use a similar Creative Commons license. Conlangery is supported by our listeners. Please visit patreon.com slash conlangery to give your support. Thank you. <laughs>